This is the Education Gadfly Show. Wait, so Congress actually passed the Stone Day thing? I have no idea if Congress passed it or if the board of Starbucks passed it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwink of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest of the week, the Bruno Mars of Education Reform, Kate Posford Kramer, the Deputy Executive Director of Advanced CTE. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I consider myself more the war on drugs, another winner from last night's Grammys, mm. but... Just personal preference. Carrie Fisher, also a winner last night at the Grammys, which was very exciting. Super exciting. Very, yes. And we're also joined by Adam Tyner for his very first appearance. Adam is our Associate Director of Research here at Fordham. Welcome, Adam. How's it going, ladies? Good. Did you watch the Grammys last night? I watched part of it, the the first half. Mm, See, I'm just like a purely pre-show watcher. Like, give me the red carpet, give me the conversations, and then after that, I'll watch the performance on YouTube. I was solely a Twitter troller, so... Kendrick One. Lamar's performance at the beginning was pretty awesome, but I didn't really watch after it kept going and there were more performances and I wasn't into them, anything like that one. So Lots to catch up on, but for now, we got to catch up on education. So up next, the Ed Reform Update. And we're back with the Ed Reform Update. And today we're going to talk about, I think, one of the biggest questions in education right now. Kate, is this CTE easier? Um, is this CTE easier? Well, it's actually, CTE is kind of had a year for had the past year. four, five years, but we're definitely seeing CTE stay. The momentum is there. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually just last week released a report looking at state policies impacting CTE and readiness across the country mm-hmm. in 2017, and 49 states in D.C. passed 241 policies that impact CTE or readiness at the K-12 or post-secondary level. So... Is that yeah. more or That's trend upward? A lot. A lot so more. we've been doing this for about five years. We've usually had between 140, 150 policies. So a huge spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly every Student Succeeds Act, a lot of states went, mm-hmm. which we'll come back to that, went pretty aggressively in support of CT and readiness, which is super exciting. That was part of it. But actually the biggest area of, of policy was around funding. We saw a mm. lot of states put new funds, um, incentive funds, subsidizing uh, looking at community college, looking at trying to fill in access gaps in rural communities. Uh, we definitely, and, and you know, we've said this every year, looking, starting to track the state of state addresses mm-hmm. coming out from governors, looking at the policies that have implementation in 2018. We think it'll be another huge year. Ooh, prediction. So, I mean, one of the big things that, or one of the tensions in CT that everyone always talks about is, you know, well, you know, if we're making kids career ready, like, are we giving up on them for college? Or there's, you know, kind of a sorted history around CTE when you go back to the voc ed days. What's changed for people who haven't been paying attention to this debate? Sure, that's a great question. So it, from our perspective, it is both. It should be both. And if you're looking at a CT program that is not preparing kids academically, mm-hmm. that's not a CT program you should be supporting. Mm-hmm. So I think what's changed in the past 15, 20 years has really moved of kind of traditional voc ed for being for some kids, mm-hmm. for kids that weren't college ready in a limited number of career fields, kind of traditional blue collar mm-hmm. into manufacturing, manufacturing. Yep. But more manufacturing in terms of you work this one machine for the rest of your life. That's a great example. So yes. look at manufacturing. You get a job in 1995 in a manufacturing plant. You have you have one job, right? You're Press working the on button, one machine. You pull the lever. Maybe yeah. maybe even fixing that machine, right. but you're fixing that one machine. Now, when you're looking at manufacturing programs, which are pretty diverse, what employers want is they want people to come in who can work all the machines, who can fix all the machines, who can code the machines, mm-hmm. um, who can actually. So it's a much greater demand of the workforce, which mm-hmm. then has impacts in the, in the programs. The other, I think, big shift has been just the diversity of programs. And so we're not just looking at 
you know, the traditional fields, but there are biotech programs, there are cybersecurity programs, there are programs in early education, you name the field. Right. There early are education? Early education. Like what's early education CT going to look like? Sure. So a lot of them, um, so usually you're being certified as a um, certified, oh, I should know this, child care associate. Uh, or oh, okay. I thought, sorry, I was thinking CTE for oh, like early no. child. <laughs> like what is the, are four-year-olds coding with the little caterpillars? Because uh, that's one of my favorite toys to give not, no. I mean, there, there yeah. is more moving into the elementary school for sure. No, I more meant, you know, providing. It's okay, a huge okay, demand, sorry. right? And, and so there's quite a few schools that are actually fo- focusing on growing your own, right? They're creating teacher academies to say, we know we have a teacher shortage. Why are we waiting until college to try to, um, given that something like 80% of all teachers work mm-hmm. within a few miles of where they grew up. So right. why not train them to be a teacher or, or get them the bug in high school? get them part of the way there and circle back. So part of it has to do with being more responsive to the economy. It has to be looking at, um, this doesn't have to just be for some kids, but there's benefit for all kids, especially if you're attending to the academics as well. So does that mean that a lot of students who are traditionally the ones who would be going to college, planning to go to college, might be doing CTE just as much as, as other students? Increasingly. I mean, it's not a one-to-one, but you look in some states, New Jersey is kind of the standard example where Mm -hmm. they up their game on the quality of their programs, largely through their county vocational system. And now you look at those schools and there's not enough access. And particularly people that don't have access are those that might benefit the most from it. So Mm -hmm. you're seeing white, suburban, upper middle class families demand access to those programs where they have 100% of kids graduating, 100% going Mm -hmm. on to college, in many cases, highly selective college, because it just makes school more interesting and more fun and more Mm -hmm. engaging than just sitting in a traditional classroom, kind of the same way it's designed for 100 years. Yeah, no, and I mean, we came out with a study a couple of years ago that looked at the long-term impact. And, you know, if kids are taking aligned CTE, so, you know, if they're taking, you know, one, two, and three classes in a series of classes that build to something, they actually have, you know, better long-term outcomes in terms of college attendance and in terms of uh, income down the road. Yeah, I mean, the research has been slow. And unfortunately, a lot of the data we often look at in CT, it's, it's a place where we definitely need a lot more work. A lot of the reports that come out from NCES are looking mm-hmm. at, you know, the graduating class of 2004. And it's a good class. It's a good class for, <laughs> for, sure. some, others, for some of you. Um, but the problem is, you know, the last you know, the last Perkins reauthorization, for right. example, was 2006. That wasn't really implemented in 2007, 8. Mm-hmm. You look at what states, where states have really stepped up in leadership, it's really been the last 10, 15 years. You're not going to be able mm-hmm. to see the impact of those changes looking at data that's 15 years old. So there's been a trickle of some good data looking at um, outcomes, you know, in Massachusetts and Arkansas that mm-hmm. you guys did to look at if you're in a real program and you're just kind of in that program and you have opportunity, then there are real outcomes. There's another study came out recently, which kind of got some negative press because it said, oh, kids in CT aren't more likely to go to college than c- those kids not in CT. And we looked at it and said, so you're saying there's no difference. Right. Kids right. in CT are as likely Correct. as other kids to go to college, and which if is you look, huge. If you look at the data 15, 20 years ago, that was not the case. And so that's a huge change. Yeah, no. And so you brought up the P word. So I'm going to ask you about the P word. Perkins reauthorization. Is 2018 the year of the Perkins reauthorization? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was 2017 the year, it was 2016 the year. <laughs> We went through the same thing with ESSO where it was like, Mm -hmm. it was going to be No Child Left Behind was going to be reauthorized. And like, even until like, I remember they were voting and I'm like, this isn't going to pass. And Mike's like, you know, it's done, right? Like this is happening. And I still didn't believe it. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, you ask me on any given day and I'll give you a different Mm -hmm. answer. So the House has passed as reauthorized Perkins twice in the past two years. Um, Really the same bill. Uh, So they passed it in 20. 16 and then reauthorized again last summer it was a unanimous by voice vote so talk Mm -hmm. about an actual like final bipartisan issue out there uh however uh the senate has not made as much progress so they 
have kind of come come and far. I mean, ultimately there, it's nothing to do with CT, nothing to do with Perkins. It has to do with secretary authority. Mm-hmm. It has to do with what's the role of the federal government versus mm-hmm. state. And that's kind of where they've been held up. Um, but there's some re we're seeing a little bit, but again, every six months we're seeing a little bit of energy. Mm-hmm. They've had a couple of uh, briefings in the last couple of weeks to really kind of understand what's options are out there. What's right. kind of historically worked, right. what hasn't worked. So we'll see. It's still not clear if they do move forward, if they're going to pick up the house bill, if they're going to start with something else. So, <laughs> <laughs> this is a very long-winded like if I had a magic maybe. this is yes if I had a magic eight ball I would say ask again later it's okay. just a, a constant um, I mean I think we're optimistic I think again it's like one of the few bipartisan issues mm-hmm. I think there are champions on the help committee it's a red state thing it's a blue state thing it's exactly yeah. I mean from our perspective we look at it and say don't doesn't everyone need to win like this is this actually is an easy mm-hmm. win but unfortunately politics can get in the way right. of that we also well, lost a lot of time last year because healthcare just Right. sucked up the help committee for about you know months and months mm-hmm. unfortunately well you know hopefully lamar and susan and the talking stick can solve this one as well but we are fans of um making bets fun bets not bets with money here on the education catfly show so i'm gonna ask you both we've got a rosy outlook on state cte we've got a rosy outlook on cte public opinion yes no on perkins and if yes what month are you predicting and then we'll come back and see what happens adam i'm gonna say no that way i don't have to pick a month okay <laughs> All right, well, to be contrarian, I'll say yes, and I will say June. All right, so let's come back in June and see if Kate's prediction comes true. But that's all the time we have today for this Ed Reform Update. Up next, everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. And we're back. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks, Alyssa. You know, uh, we just had Kate Blossburn Kramer in from Advanced CTE, and she mentioned, and we didn't get to discuss it on air, that this month is National CTE Month. Did not know there was such a thing. Did we just come up with this this year, you, or has this been a thing? I need to do a little more research, but I think, you know, of all of the months and days that we give things to, right. it's National Scone Day this week, uh-huh. National CTE Month is, I think, a pretty good month. I mean, it's school choice week or month it's catholic schools week catholic and last week was school choice week. last week of school wow yes. we are packing it in lots of things to celebrate in education <laughs> as long as so it depends but for the most part like i think it's you get a bill to congress and they just like deem something deem wait so congress actually oh. passed the scone day thing i have no idea if congress <laughs> passed it or if the board of starbucks passed it but it was definitely yes, trending on right. twitter anyway Alrighty then. what do you got I've got a new working paper out by Calder that examines the differences in teacher value added. It's going to get a little wonky in here today. In charter and traditional public schools. We love these things that look at differences between charter and traditional public schools lately. Um, This one looks at the differences in value added, like I said, and what may be causing any differences between the sectors. Analysts use official teacher value added scores from the Sunshine State for 2011 through 2014. Uh, They supplement those data with school characteristics such as student composition, school poverty, and a bunch of teacher variables. And then they supplement all that with data from the Schools and Staffing Survey from 2011-12, which includes a bunch of responses from Florida teachers relative to working conditions and supports and job satisfaction between the two sectors. So they try to get a little bit into the black box relative to why we might see these differences. Uh, To help control for the fact that charter teachers are more likely to be new teachers. We know that. I was going to ask that. Uh, And they have fewer years of value-added scores from which to draw. Analysts focus on the value-added scores of all teachers that were calculated using one year of student performance. Not 
perfect, but what can you do, right? Like that's just one way they try to sort of tackle that issue. Uh, they compare the value-added scores in the two sectors at different points of the distribution and find that, here's your first headline, teachers working in charter schools with higher poverty rates have significantly higher value-added scores than do traditional teachers working in the same setting. Okay. Huh. For instance, charter students assigned to a math teacher whose value-added score falls on the 90th percentile of the charter teacher value-added distribution performs 3.6% of a standard deviation, not huge, but that's what it is, better on their state math test than similar traditional school students assigned to a math teacher whose value-added also falls on the 90th percentile among traditional teachers. Do they get into hmm. days, like how many days learning are we talking? They did not. Oh. You just get 3.6% of a standard deviation. You know, me without... <laughs> That's a really easy and concrete way of looking at it. Uh, yet these differences do not appear in schools with below average poverty rates serving more affluent kids. Um, instead, they are driven by schools serving disadvantaged students in that the most effective teachers at poor charter schools have significantly higher value added than the most effective traditional teachers in similar schools. Sort of repeated in a different way what I just said. Uh, they conduct, I mean, there's three or four pages on this test that they do to kind of look at whether it's being driven mostly by school level effects, mm -hmm. um, such as leadership, for instance. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And they find that it's mostly not driven by that, but Honestly, I'm not completely convinced because they had to look at switchers. So I could get, I, I, I digress. <laughs> I'll keep going so we can talk about it. Finally, they find that years of teaching experience alone failed to explain any of the gap that I just told you about. Um, that Rather, it's the return. This is interesting. The return on teacher experience in the charter sector that mostly explains the gap. Specifically, uh, while there's no relationship again between teacher experience and effectiveness in the poor traditional schools, the value-added scores of teachers improve considerably in the first three to five years of teaching in similar charter schools. So they're getting more return to experience in the charter sector, and that's what they think may be driving some of these differences. Last, they looked at the SAS survey data I told mm -hmm. you about before. They find that teachers in the charter sector report higher levels of support and more control over their practice than do teachers in traditional schools, which they say, hey, maybe that's what's going on. That may explain some of these differences. And then they do a little more hypothesizing and say it could also be that charter schools are just better at filtering out effective, I mean, ineffective teachers. Kind of the widget effect. And that, hey, they have less restrictive personnel mm -hmm. policies. And maybe this is something traditional schools should be doing is adopting these policies. But like, hello, that's a little easier said than done. Right. So anyway, it's it's a really thick report. Um, I think Whatever, some of it, this stuff we saw before. Um, but anyway, I think it's worth worth reading. Is it at the teacher level or the school level? It's at the teacher level. Okay, yep. and so the teachers in the in the schools that were performing at a low level in the charter sector were outperforming the teachers in the low level traditional, the traditional schools. Right. That's and, right. And those levels, how? Was there a middle level too, so or was it just the top and the yeah, bottom? Yeah, they looked at 25th, 50th, 75th mm -hmm. percentile. They looked at all the points along the distribution. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, so like what could be going on, right? Like I think, I mean, one thing that they talked about when I didn't get into is they look at whether or not um, teachers who's taught in both sectors, so they were in traditional, they were in sector, they had the same value added. Mm -hmm. Did their value added change when they changed sectors? Mm -hmm. Only like 66 teachers I could look at. Um, and they didn't see much change. So they say, well, maybe it's not a school level effect going on. But, you know, I don't know, just intuitively, we know that charter schools, especially low performing, I mean, low, poor charter schools invest so much, right, in their training. You think about these no mm -hmm. excuses charter schools, in their training, in their development of teachers. So you just want wonder 
you know, what school level stuff they didn't weren't able to control. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that this kind of fits into the larger narrative that we see about high performing charter networks. And, you know, when I was coming into the teaching profession, um, it was kind of explained to me by someone a couple years older that, you know, the charter schools were going to kind of be at the margins, the high end and the low end of mm-hmm. effectiveness, of quality, of culture, et cetera. And then the district schools had just less variation. Mm. So they were going to be more in the middle, steadier, but less of a kind of wild shot in the dark in terms of like where I might be teaching. Mm-hmm. When you look at like a lot of these high-performing networks that everyone touts, when you look at the KIPPS, the Success Academy, Achievement First, like they're all investing so much in leadership and in culture and that attracts talent and that attracts the people mm-hmm. who are going to work really, really hard. So especially when you if you stay like three to five years in KIPP, you're going to be a really great teacher for a high poverty school. So tell so, me, and you may know this better than I do, Alyssa, what's charter policy like in Florida? Oh, yeah, yeah, and sure. they just came out with the National Alliance's rankings, which are on my desk to yeah. read. I, it's not, I mean, look, the point is, it's, it's not the Ohio Wild yeah, West. Yeah, it's not a not, Wild and West. Ohio's not wild and westier. Thank you, like Chad. Like to be us. Um, right, well, well yeah. another question, I guess, is what about these... Um, charter schools that are in the top of the distribution because the ones that Alyssa was talking about are ones that KIPP generally serves lower performing students in difficult situations. Mm -hmm. But the comparison where there wasn't much of a difference was in the higher higher performing. How many of those are there in Florida? Do we know anything about that? Well, I mean, they tend to serve, I would argue, um, lower income students or students from more disadvantaged backgrounds. But once they're in a KIPP school and they're in there for a while, like you do see performance impacts. Uh, Success had the highest uh, scores on the first New York Common Core Align test a couple of years ago. So I do think that this kind of gets back into like culture, et cetera. And I don't remember quite what the Florida charter policies are, but they were conceived under uh, Governor Bush. So Mm -hmm. they're probably... Gears more to serving disadvantaged. Right. And, And, you know, some guardrails, but also some good autonomy there would be my guess. Someone please tell me. You know, maybe because of these policies, they've had more experience working with disadvantaged kids. Mm -hmm. They're doing a better job. I mean, who knows? Um, But yeah, I do think that, and we've seen similar studies where we've (laughs) seen charter schools uh, do markedly better with lower performing Mm -hmm. kids. Um, And so it doesn't, it wasn't super surprising to me, the findings in terms of what we saw, but I guess the black box is where it's always much harder to figure out what is going on. I mean, that's education reform in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes, it um, is. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all of the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, Amber. Yes, ma'am. And that's all the time we have for the Gadfly Show. Till next week. I'm Adam Tyner. And I'm Alyssa Schwing for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.